Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following sermon on October 8th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. I preached this message seven days after the terrible tragedy in Las Vegas, in which a gunman claimed the lives of at least 58 people. How do we make sense of an event like that in light of our Christian faith? Well, that's what this sermon is all about. I hope that you'll be challenged by it. I hope you'll be encouraged by it. Um, Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, which I'm going to read right now. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And Roz, I'm so glad that you chose to wear Georgia Tech colors (laughs) for me on your last Sunday. I I made mention of this at the 9 o'clock service, um, Gary Chitwood, just a couple of days ago, nearly electrocuted himself. Yeah, no, he's fine, and it wasn't his fault. Um, it was, he's an, elect, an electrician, and, and of course you assume some level of risk. It's dangerous work. Um, but because of someone else's uh, mistake, he nearly died. So uh, I was going to apologize to him if he were actually in the sanctuary for the story that I'm about to share. Um, If he's listening, maybe he's in the nursery, I don't know. But Gary, if you are listening to this, and if you hear it on the podcast or something later, just please know that I did not choose this story uh, with you in mind. Uh, I don't mean to be insensitive. But back in the 60s, early 60s, a psychologist named Stanley Milgram He's at Yale. He was at Yale University. He conducted a series of experiments that involved shock treatment, or at least that's what his test subjects uh, thought. Back then, the world was still recovering from the evil of Hitler and the Nazis. And the ultimate purpose of Milgram's studies was to see just what kind of person could commit the atrocities of Nazi Germany. What kind of person could participate in genocide and under what circumstances? So in this experiment, 
Milgram told his test subjects, these were just people off the street, that he was conducting an experiment about education, about learning. There was going to be a student, and he saw, the, the, the test subject saw this person. There was a student uh, in the room next door. Um, and when they put him in the room next door, he couldn't see him anymore. He could hear the person in the other room, but he couldn't see them. But there was a, a student in the next room, and he was supposed to memorize some things as part of a memory test. And the test subject was supposed to ask him a series of questions related to what he had memorized. Every time the student got an answer wrong, it was the teacher's responsibility, because the test subject was now the teacher, to press, to, to flip a switch on this panel in front of him. And the switch that he flipped would actually send a shock to that person because the student was in the other room with electrodes attached to him and he was strapped into a chair. And so the teacher was administering shocks to the student when they got the wrong answers. And um, Nan is thinking, what a great idea. Why didn't they have that when I was teaching? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, Well, I hope you get the picture now. So every time this student Uh, got the answer wrong, he's flipping a switch. Now, on this panel in front of the teacher were switches, 30 switches, from 15 volts all the way up to 450 volts. And there were labels underneath the switches ranging from slight shock to danger, severe shock. In fact, the label underneath the 450-volt switch simply was marked XXX. You get the idea. Every time the student got an answer wrong, the teacher flipped a switch and sent, as far as he knew, a small or large shock to that person. Every wrong answer, it it would increase in intensity. The voltage would go up. And he would hear, the, the, the teacher would hear screaming from the room next door. And, and this, man was, this man would be crying out, please stop, please stop. Until he no longer made any sound. There was only silence. In spite of this, the vast majority of test subjects or teachers, between 65 and 85% of them in different experiments conducted over years were willing to administer the highest levels of shock to the point of rendering the student unconscious or worse, as far as the teacher knew. You probably already guessed that the student in the next room really wasn't taking part in the experiment. He was an actor. He wasn't harmed in any way. But the results of this experiment shocked the world. And I shocked. I actually did not choose that word for that reason. But, but they, they, they shocked and surprised the world. Um, because the implications of the study were clear. There's a killer 
within each one of us. If these normal, average, middle American people were willing to electrocute someone just because a person wearing a white lab coat, a person who looked like he was an authority figure, was telling them to do so, then what's stopping them from participating in genocide? All of us have the capacity to do great evil. And at least apart from God's grace, we do often. Frankly, as Christians who understand human beings, the nature of man, we shouldn't be surprised by the results of Milgram's experiment. We should know ourselves. All of us Christians, when we first came to faith, In Christ, when we accepted him as our Savior and Lord, we either prayed a prayer or said some words or thought some things along these lines. Father, I, like everyone else who's ever lived, with one important exception, am a sinner. Your word says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Father, I confess that that is me. I confess I am among those sinners. I deserve the wages of my sin, which is physical and spiritual death. I deserve your judgment. I deserve your wrath. I deserve the hell that you prepared for Satan and his minions before the foundation of the world. This is the first half of the gospel. This is why Jesus sent his son in the first place. Some of you will remember back in the 80s, there was a best-selling book written by a rabbi named Harold Kushner. The book was called, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The title, from a Christian perspective, is almost completely hypothetical. As one theologian put it, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once in history, and he volunteered. There are no good people besides Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself told the rich young ruler who said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And of course, Jesus was good, but Jesus was also God. The rich young ruler didn't know that. But no one besides Jesus has ever been good. A more relevant title to that book might be When Bad Things Happen to Bad People. I guess that wouldn't sell. But that describes who we are as human beings apart from God's grace. I emphasize this point because if we don't understand this fact about ourselves, we simply can't understand Jesus's seemingly harsh, insensitive, unsentimental response to two tragedies mentioned in today's scripture. Now, to understand what's happening here, let's look back at what Jesus has been teaching in the chapter immediately preceding Luke chapter 13. He's been talking about our impending death. In our urgent need to get our lives right with God, to get ready to face final judgment. You need to do whatever you can, Jesus says, to be ready when death 
and judgment come. Or if the second coming happens before you die, you still need to be ready for that. Many people, Jesus warns in Luke chapter 12, will not be ready. Don't be like them, Jesus says. So it's in this context that someone brings Jesus the news about a tragic and evil event that happened not too far away in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, we meet him later in the Gospels, of course. He ruled over Palestine. He massacred or ordered the massacre by way of Roman soldiers of some Galileans who had come up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, to offer sacrifices. And he had his soldiers kill them with swords and and mix their blood along with the blood of these sacrificial animals. It was ghastly. And I mean, these people had just come to church to worship, just like we're worshiping this morning, and they were dead. Maybe the people who brought Jesus this news. Imagine that, that, that these Jewish worshipers from Galilee were an example of, of, of people who were not ready to face God in final judgment. Maybe they were such big sinners. That's why God was allowing Pilate to, to punish and judge them for their sins in this way. Maybe that's why they died in this terrible manner. So when Jesus asks, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He expects these people to answer yes. We do think that they were worse sinners, and that's why this terrible thing happened to them. Jesus, of course, denies this. But listen to how he denies it. He doesn't deny for a moment that the victims of this tragedy are sinners who deserve death, who deserve God's judgment, who deserve God's wrath. They're not innocent, Jesus implies. But he also affirms that the one who brought, the ones who brought him the news... Indeed, everyone within earshot of Jesus's voice was equally a sinner who deserves death and God's judgment and God's wrath. No, Jesus says these victims were not worse sinners than you. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I thought of this scripture and I thought I would interrupt my sermon series to preach the scripture because the, the, the evil tragedy caused by Pilate is nearly identical to the evil tragedy caused by Stephen Paddock in Las Vegas. Sure, the murder weapon weapons were different. Swords instead of guns. The number of victims was probably different, whether less or more, we don't know. But Pilate certainly wouldn't have lost sleep over killing 58 people. That's just a day at the office for him. And of course, events like what happened in Las Vegas last Sunday happen every week somewhere in the world. It's just that as Americans, we're mostly insulated from this kind of violence. But, but, but when they do happen near us, Our Lord has a message that he urgently wants us to hear. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Please note, Jesus is not speaking these words to the grieving families 
of Pilate's victims. We see, we see in John chapter 11 how Jesus ministers to people whose loved ones die. We see Jesus minister to the sisters of his friend Lazarus when Lazarus dies. We see Jesus get overwhelmed with grief and to cry, to cry, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus back to life. And yet Jesus still is overcome by grief and he breaks down in tears. No one is more compassionate than our Lord Jesus. But Jesus in today's scripture was not preaching to the families and friends of the victims. Perhaps he would have chosen different words for them. Likewise, I'm not preaching to the friends and families of the victims of Stephen Paddock. But you and I are a lot like the people to whom Jesus is preaching in today's scripture. Like them, we've heard about a terrible, unspeakably evil tragedy that happened not so far away. And we're afraid and we're angry We're worried about our own safety and security. We're wondering what we can do to protect ourselves so that it won't happen to us. In fact, in Luke 13, Jesus and his disciples and probably many others in that crowd are on their way to Jerusalem for Jesus's last week of life before he gets crucified. And I'm sure many of Jesus's disciples are thinking to themselves, what if that happened to us? If Pilate can kill these Galileans, maybe he'll kill us Galileans too. What's stopping him? Surely, I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. And I mean, that's got to make Pilate deeply suspicious. I mean, how's he going to respond? The people in Jesus' audience felt insecure, unsafe, vulnerable. They were afraid of dying. And in the same way, many of us in this past week have asked ourselves, Am I so different from these victims in Las Vegas? Is my family so different from them? Is my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my my father, my mother so different from these wives, husbands, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers who were viciously murdered by Stephen Paddock last Sunday night? I go to concerts often. I've I've been to music festivals. I, I like country music. I also go to ball games and and other public events. I'm often surrounded by by high-rises and towers and skyscrapers. Who's to say there's not another Stephen Paddock out there who wants to kill for no reason? What terrifying freedom we human beings have to cause great pain and suffering. We're so vulnerable. We're so insecure. We're so unsafe. And there's not much that any single one of us can do about it. And Jesus's word to us today in light of our terrifying human freedom to sin and cause great evil and suffering is not a comforting one. It's not a reassuring one. It's not designed to make us feel better. It's definitely not what we want to hear. Yet it's obviously obvious uh, that Jesus wants us to hear it. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, what does this mean? Jesus can't mean that unless they repent, they too will be murdered by Pilate. 
because he also points to another tragedy that was in the news of that day. There was a tower in Jerusalem that fell and crushed to death 18 people out of the blue, just a freak accident. Jesus knows you can't die twice. You can't die at the hands of Pilate and then also die by getting crushed by a tower. So Jesus doesn't mean that literally the same thing will happen to them, nor is he saying that if they do end up repenting, they will not die. Jesus knows, as we all do, that everyone will die so long as the second coming doesn't happen first. We will all die whether we repent or not. So he's not talking about a natural death here. We may, any one of us may die um, of natural causes or through an act of violence or through a, a freakish accident of some kind, whether we repent or not. Jesus is talking about a different kind of perishing. It's, it's the kind of perishing that Jesus mentions in the Bible's most famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not but have everlasting life. It's the same kind of perishing that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Perishing in this context is the opposite of having eternal life, of being saved. To perish means to be judged for our sins, to experience God's wrath, to go to hell. That's what each one of us, apart apart from Christ's atoning work on the cross, deserves right now because of our sins. Honestly, every time there's some kind of national tragedy like Las Vegas, some people will use that as an opportunity to shake their fist at God and say, how could you let that happen? How could you let these people die like this? But that question gets it exactly backwards. The question is not, how could a loving God let these people die? The question is, how could a just God let the rest of us sinners continue to live? How could a just God allow us sinners to live day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment in open rebellion against him and his loving rule? I mean, when we hear about someone in our own country who's, who's guilty of committing treason, many of us will say, let's bring Bring back the firing squad for those people, right? You heard it recently with Bo Bergdahl, this guy in the army who wandered off and, and put people's lives in jeopardy in Afghanistan. Bring back the firing squad. He deserves capital punishment. But who do we think we are in treason against our king who's far more worthy of our allegiance and our loyalty and our love and our dedication than any nation? When we hear about a tragedy like Las Vegas, why not, why not fall on our knees and thank God that he has let us live for another day? Because none of us deserves this life. How merciful God must be that he keeps on giving us one opportunity after another to repent. Yet most of the time, most people in most parts of the world say, no, God. I don't want you. I don't accept you on your terms. 
Feel free to save me if you'd like. Feel free to send me to heaven when I die. But I'm not willing right now to surrender my life to you, to submit my life to you, to let you sit on the throne of my life, because that means I can't be in charge anymore. And I want to be in charge. We're like that fig tree in this parable that Jesus tells in verses six through eight. The owner of this vineyard is ready to chop the tree down. It's been years. It hasn't produced any fruit. And the gardener says, okay, no, no, no. Let's just give it one more year. Just, just one more year. Let me see what I can do. Give it one more year. And then if this time next year it hasn't produced anything, then by all means, let's, let's cut it down. Let's throw it, on, throw it in the fire. Let it be destroyed. We are living in a season of mercy. One more year, perhaps, for some of us. Or worse, maybe, maybe one more month, one more week, one more day. None of us knows. God knows. And God is patiently waiting for some of you to repent, to believe in Jesus, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God is so merciful that he's giving us this time right now. No future time is guaranteed, but we have this time right now to repent and to give our lives to Christ and to live for Christ. But he wants us to know that time is running out. I shared this in an e-news. Um, last week, a professor at the Candler School of Theology, I, he was not my professor, um, he joined since I graduated, and he is, I'm happy to report, a theologically conservative evangelical. Um, but he, he tweeted, he tweeted something that moved me. He said that we Christians need to learn to regularly stop and ask ourselves, am I living my Christian life as if I really believe it? Am I living my Christian life as if I really believe the gospel? If I really believe what God has revealed to us in his word, am I living in a way that's consistent with that? That convicted me. I hope it convicts you. We should all learn to ask ourselves that question. All we know for sure is we have this moment of time. How will we use it? Father Almighty, difficult words from your holy word. Help us learn. Enable us to learn to ask, are we living in a way that's consistent with this message? At the nine o'clock service, the praise band played a song about eternity and they said that we, we talk about the rain and we mull over things that won't last past today. Oh God, how often do we do that? How often do we spend our time and attention and give our energy to things that are far from eternal, to things that won't last when there is a whole world who is desperate to hear and respond to the good news of your son. Help us to be faithful in the mission that you've given us 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're we're on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, Georgia. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11 o'clock. Hope to see you there.